If I were still giving out life tips, here would be one. Always have your favorites ready. That is, when someone asks you what your favorite book, song, band, or film is, pull out your answer as though you, you are the fastest draw in the West. For me, it goes like this. Favorite band, The Smiths. Favorite song, One More Chance, The Remix. Favorite film, Amadeus. Favorite book, The Trial. Are any of these actually my favorites? Maybe yes, maybe no, but it is better to have an unequivocal answer than to waffle. Never waffle. Having said that, Franz Kafka's The Trial really has to be my favorite novel, much as I also love Flaubert's Madame Bovary and Dostoevsky's Notes from Underground. It was perhaps one of the great accidents of history that I even read The Trial. The summer before I had read Kafka's Metamorphosis, found it to be claustrophobic and unfunny, and decided that maybe Kafka just wasn't for me. The next spring, however, I found myself studying abroad in the south of France and taking a course on European modernist literature. And about halfway through the semester, we read The Trial. It was the final line of the penultimate chapter, In the Cathedral, which caused me to fall in love with the novel. The court wants nothing from you. It receives you when you come, and releases you when you go. When I read these words, I inwardly made the decision, if not wholly unconsciously, that I loved the trial, and I loved this guy Kafka, whoever he was. It was in this scene in which Joseph K. was told that all of the accusations, the guilt, the intimidation, and the fear with which the court had been punishing him was, so to speak, only in his head. It was all in his head. Or, to put it more precisely, it was in a part of his head which was masochistic, which wanted to punish Joseph K., in which Joseph K., perversely, ironically, and never fully explicably, continued to acquiesce to and even propel forward. Did humans, in a twisted way, derive joy from feeling guilty? Were the alleged trials we found ourselves facing nothing more than thoughts? Could we lower the moral standard we held ourselves to since, after all, we are only human? These were the questions which Kafka's novel, culminating in this one particular sentence, unleashed within me. I had been a vegetarian at the time, and to just give a very minor sense of the impact this novel had on me, I can share an anecdote. I thought that I should learn from Joseph K. and recognize that, no matter what I did, I was still guilty, and the feeling of innocence which came from foregoing meat could never truly assuage the guilt dwelling down in the depths of my soul. So, I started eating meat again, shortly after reading the novel. But then, after about a week, I went back to being a vegetarian. I concluded that it is rather irrelevant to the sacrificed animals whether their future devourer feels guilty or not. In any case, I don't think there was ever a novel I read which caused me to alter my diet, even if only for a week or so. The trial captivated me. But now, in retrospect, even though I was blessed to have been assigned this novel, if I did not have the right professor, its wisdom would likely have gone right past me. The trial is so often misunderstood, and even worse, mistaught. Fortunately, the professor who taught me this book knew what he was doing. He got the trial. He insisted to our class, first, that the entire trial might be transpiring only in Kay's head. Second, he proposed that despite the somber trappings of the novel, it might be humorous at its core. Kafka, after all, 
did laugh uncontrollably when reading the first chapter aloud to his friends. Tragically, I have later discovered that so many students, whether in high school literature class or in a graduate university seminar, learn exactly the opposite, that the court which pursues Kay is representative of a totalitarian regime, and that the novel as a whole is deathly serious. The professor of whom I so fondly speak is Lee Smith. Lee received his PhD in comparative literature from the University of North Carolina. For nine years, he served as Dean of the Institute for American Universities in Aix-en-Provence. Currently, he is the Vice President of Student Affairs at the American College of the Mediterranean. When I attended the study abroad program in Aix-en-Provence, Lee was my professor. Although since then he went on to become the Dean of the college, he continued teaching courses on literature, even while in this executive role. His passion for comparative European literature has remained as vibrant today as it was when I studied with him over 15 years ago. I'll just say a few words about about Lee, Professor Smith. Um, we, he was my professor uh, 15 years ago at this same university. And I took a class with him, a literature class, which I would say it wouldn't be an understatement to say it changed my life, or an overstatement to say it changed my life, uh, because uh, we read in this class uh, Franz Kafka's novel, The Trial. Um, the class was about European literary modernism. We read a few other novels uh, from that era, Thomas Mann, Death in Venice. Uh, we read Dostoevsky, Notes from Underground, also two wonderful books. And a couple others, uh, maybe maybe Lee will remember them. Just the Lover from Marguerite Duras. Yeah, and there was a French one. That was the French one. Yeah, that was the. I think that was the one I had the least uh, connection with. And then there was one more, which was pretty good. Conversations in Sicily, Elio Vittorini. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That Mm. was that was yeah. So it was different European countries. Hmm. Um, I would say the ones that I liked were the most angsty ones, which reflected my mindset at the time as like a. Actually, the name of the course was the European novel. Marginaliza- marginalization and alienation. Right. I think that's probably why I took the class because I probably felt alienated. Yeah. And of all the novels, though, The Trial was the one that had the most uh, profound influence on me. And for those of you who listen to The Shrift, you know how much I refer to it. And I, it's still to this day, my, I would say it's my favorite book. And I also wrote my master's thesis on it, and now I'm writing my dissertation on it. And I'll probably just be writing about it for like a good, well into my adult adult years in my academic career. And um, the thing is that now that I'm more experienced with the trial, I've noticed that uh, many students have opposite reactions that I did where they are they find it to be a very dark and difficult novel, um, especially students in Germany who learn it in high school. 
So now I even more appreciate the way Lee taught it in the class, uh, which we'll talk about in the interview. Uh, so that's why he's here. And we're going to be connecting this episode or this interview back to my to episode 12 from the first season where I talked about the trial and the final book of the final parsha from the book of Genesis. Uh, so we'll be loosely tying this interview back to that episode. So Lee, it's great to have you here. Nice to be here. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And, you know, I think we have to start with just kind of a, a standard interview question of who are you, what do you do, and just so the audience knows kind of who, the, who, who they're hearing from. Sure, sure, sure. Uh, this is, uh, we're at the Institute for American Universities, which is also now the American College of the Mediterranean, so it's changed a little bit since you were first here. Um, as of today, I am the Vice President of Student Affairs. Uh, I've been Dean at the Institute, until yesterday anyway, for about 11 years, lived in France 22 years. Um, have been associated with the Institute at the time. Steve, you were a student here. I was just teaching one class at the Institute, and that's 15 or so years ago now. Spring 2007, so a little over 15 years ago. But right, and I had, that, that was maybe my second or third semester being here. So at the time, I was teaching just one class here and teaching at the um, Ex-Marseille University as well. Shrift, Interview 12 with Lee Smith, Vice President of Student Affairs at the American College of the Mediterranean, Vayachi. Awesome. So let's go back um, 15 years to this class that I took. Spring 2007, George Bush was president. Um, very different world than today. Hmm. But, and at that point, you were um, a professor at the university teaching just one class? Here, just teaching one class. Yeah. Yes. Hmm. And as we mentioned, you include you taught me this class on european modernism alienation and marginalization and alienation i think was the title the right. subtitle for the european novel can you explain uh what made you choose the trial to teach in this class why did you pick the trial i well the, the, i was looking for uh a few different books and my my background is is as a comparatist uh, the title of the course was the European novel, so I was trying to get a wide swath of European novels, continental European novels. I avoided British, anything British or American or anything like that. So I was looking for French, Italian, um, uh, German, Russian with uh, Dostoevsky. Um, and the the trial, it, it's, it's interesting you ask that because everyone, when people say alienation, they think, Oftentimes we talk about Franz Kafka in terms of literature. Yeah. Um, I've learned a, something a little bit different since having adopted that, but most people associate 
Franz Kafka with this notion of alienation. And the trial seemed like a good good length book and a good interesting book to, yeah. to work through that. Yeah, I mean, I guess you could have chosen Metamorphosis or you could have chosen other books by him. Well, I was trying to... Uh, I, I had assumed that lots of people had already read the metamorphosis i was wrong but uh but at least you know a few people in the class would have already read it whereas very few would have read the trial and uh, that i was right about 25 of you and no one had read the trial it's not one that comes up that much unless you start getting into german literature or a specialist totally okay Why alienation and not a course about like love or something more positive? Or... I thought about love. Love oh. would have been good, but I, I also just thought that uh, it would attract students. College students would like that idea of alienation and marginalization. Um, I one of one of the things that um, really drew me in was uh, notes from underground. Dostoevsky's notes from underground, and I, I, I believe that was the first book that I had in mind. Uh, for this course um and that would be the basis and that was actually i'm pretty sure that was the first book you read um uh, for that class so see i i found that for me i loved that book but it's i remember sitting in the cathedral uh, across the street and reading it in like this dark cathedral and just feeling so uh angsty for lack of a better word but i would think that that would take a certain amount of because, like, especially being in sunny Aix-en-Provence, it's like this very joie de vivre here. And that book is so much... It's it's about a a man who describes himself as an insect, you know, uh, pre... pre uh, what's the word? Uh, kind of presaging Kafka and the metamorphosis, this kind of description of yourself as an insect. That's interesting. I, I don't even remember that, but... I, he I, says I'm a... Uh, no, no, I haven't read the well, book in years, so I'm sure you... It begins, you know, I am a sick man, I am a spiteful man. That's right. I have a... Yeah, so were you at all uh, nervous about or about teaching these kind of kids that want to come to France and drink a, drink a glass of wine? And like, for me, it was perfect, but was well, there... Because that could be a little bit uncomfortable, maybe. You, I, I, I would have to go back to my own study abroad experience and my own sort of awakening which is, sounds sort of cliche, but it's true. Uh, my own sort of awakening to sort of critical thinking and um, s- sort of seeing the world not through these rose-colored lenses, which I think I'd been raised to, to see things that way. Um, and it was a turning point for me was my own study abroad experience and seeing sort of, wow, you know, everything is not as wonderful um, as my parents raised me to believe it was. Did you study abroad in France? or No, I studied abroad in Austria. Huh. Don't ask why. It's just, just a complete... In Vienna? In, it was in Salz, um, uh, Innsbruck. Okay. Hmm. Completely hmm. random choice. I mean, I'm not a good example of a, of a study abroad model of someone who really thought deep and hard about where they'd study abroad and what objectives they had. I went because... There was the opportunity, and people were studying abroad, and I was a junior, and um, it changed my life for reasons I won't go into. But 
that was one of them that sort of opening my way of thinking. And I saw that that's an opportunity that you could seize with students coming, studying abroad for the first time, getting out of their normal sort of context. Um, but I didn't, and I knew there were classes here that, that were on Provence and the Provence sunshine and the, yeah. the magic of Provence and all of that. Um, but I wanted to do a, a broader, a lot of students also, I don't, I don't want to go too much into this, but a lot of students come here, not just for France, not just for Provence, mm. but also just Europe. Yeah. And I wanted European, sort of a, a wide swath of European novels. Um, so anyway, that was, um, so these you, are all some of the reasons. You didn't feel um, like that it would, you felt confident, you didn't feel like awkward about teaching this very dark kind of, yeah. No, I know, no, I'm, I'm shaking my head. That doesn't show up in the podcast, but. <laughs> okay, nice. It's no. good for me to know uh, when I teach courses in the future, not to be afraid to let the student, give the students very, I mean, very kind of uh, heavy stuff to read. You know? I, I think if you if you if you um, if you approach that without fear, and I'm not a I'm not a dark and and, and no. brooding character. I mean, I, I have a pretty upbeat. I'm typically an upbeat person, but I do see darkness. Yeah. Um, uh, I'm not necessarily a depressive person or anything like that, but uh, I do see the darkness. And it was one of the beautiful things discovering Kafka was that. I mean, you can go through this process um, and you can do it safely because it's just a book, really. Right. You know, in the end, I don't think any of, I don't think I led any of my students to, in, as far as I know, into suicidal tendencies or anything like that. Um, no, for me, it was very therapeutic at the time. Well, that's the way I see it. Yeah. That's the way I see it. And that's the way I, I, I'm presuming that most of the students are seeing this. Mm. Um, I thought at the time, oh, I'm the only one that is get is is really uh, feeling so much therapy from this from these books. Mm. But maybe that also was just because I was 21 and I just felt alienated. And you know, it's like, funny. I, yeah. I don't want to get off topic, but I, I remember your your podcast, uh, the one about oh, right. reading The Catcher in the Rye. Yeah. And feeling like I'm the only one who who understands this, and, yeah. and it turns out preppies and cheerleaders yeah. they all felt this, you know. Um, and I think that might be one of the things that makes this book work for me is because I don't look like a Kafka kind of person, or they don't see me as a Kafka kind of person. But I, I feel like we can you can take them, you can walk them down that road and walk them down that road safely, and then walk them back. So, um, the last point from the class that I remember is, uh, and you gave this, you, for this, I remember for this class, you actually just lectured the whole time and it wasn't even, it was great. It was like this incredible lecture. Okay. Um, and you started out by saying, I want you all to, we're, we're reading about this, you know, this court and prosecuting K, we should appreciate the extent to which this might could just be in Joseph K's head. And when you said that... Are you sure I said that? <laughs> yeah. Okay. I think we debated this last time I was here. Yeah, but, yeah. 
I mean, look, memory, of course. No, the no, mem- no, of course. Memory, like, course. I could have totally misremembered. The, the reason I asked the question is because I, I can't hold up that argument. I, I can't, well, as you of didn't, now. You said consider the possibility. Consider the possibility. Okay, fair enough. Yeah. And when you said that, it just, like, I, it just really, um, that lecture you gave, I just had a totally new understanding. Of, I was reading a lot of existentialism at the time, and I think I really saw the existential themes. Right. Um, and I even went up to you after class and said, you know, thank uh, you for we this. We had also read Sartre's Nausea uh, in, this, uh, in, that bu- in that class. I don't think so. No? I had read it on my own, but I don't think we read it, in, read that it in that class. We read okay. Dostoevsky, which was existential, but... Of course. Okay. Um, Maybe not. Maybe it was another class. All right. Yeah. So, um, and one thing I remember you saying is like, you know, Kay he kind of stops asking what he's been accused of after the first chapter. He kind of like gradually just accepts. Right. Um, well, do you remember giving that lecture or? <laughs> I can't say yeah. I do that if I would, if I mean, the class was an hour and 25 minutes mm-hmm. um, and giving an entire lecture on that subject, I can't even imagine what I said from one minute. It was to like it's very like eloquent and yeah. Was it about if if it was about um, or if I was focusing on the um, the parable? Yeah, I can go a long time on the parable. That's for sure. Um, yeah. But I, I, if 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 we if I transferred into the parable from there, I could understand. But I'm not sure. I don't remember mm. every step of that lecture of like how this could be in his head. Yeah. Well, that's, um, you know, that's an interpretation that I've kind of held on to. Yeah. I understand. Um, so maybe now we can talk a bit about like related back to the previous lecture I gave on the shrift, mm-hmm. uh, which I, which was about doubt, the mastery of doubt. And I actually compared Joseph K. to George Costanza in that, <laughs> in, in George's uh, yeah. fear. He wanted to be 100% certain that he wasn't uh, homosexual, which today it's a bit of a, could be a, an offensive or outdated approach, but uh, it, what I was focusing on was how he, George couldn't live with any doubt that he might have be attracted to men and right. not to women. It, it very much disturbed him. Right. Uh, and I think anybody, if they find their sexual orientation, not anybody, but it could be disturbing to not be sure, mm-hmm. you know, to need to have that doubt. And that's a question that you can never prove. Yes. Right. So, um, and... Can I ask you a question? Sure. Sorry. Yeah. George Costanza is one you come back to a lot. Is he yeah. not a character that you... Well, I also gave a presentation in your class about That's that. what I'm thinking of. I remember that. Yeah. Um, anyway, I do... Why do I bring up George so much? Or Well, I'm just curious because it's true. He's a... He's um, I mean, he's this sort of schlubby character, but he's, he's not that different from either any of us. I mean, he's a really good sort of... I always felt... Character study. You know, I think that... Um, Seinfeld as a show and Larry David, he takes very like philosophical questions that we deal with in literature, but makes it extremely accessible and humorous. Mm-hmm. And I guess I just can see, I can 
connect the dots between these like between these very you know funny like modern characters and and yeah i mean i don't think it's coincidence that larry david like look i mean i'll he's a neurotic jewish guy i would describe him as that and (laughs) so is kafka yeah you know well, I mean, I, I, I asked the question because it was, a, it was a very clear analogy and relationship between the George Costanza character and the, and the man from underground. Right. You know, um, it was really excellent sort of lining up of the way that they, they'd handle lives, they'd handle uh, confrontation, all that sort of thing. So as I, just, I do find it fascinating. I was just curious. Well, I think it really just is that George is very neurotic hmm. and the characters we these existential i mean joseph k i would he's very neurotic yeah okay. and underground man extremely neurotic right so that is the link you could also maybe use woody allen he's like neurotic and it's it's just yeah uh, philip roth characters right would sure. fit into <laughs> yeah, portnoy so, yeah yeah okay um that's the common thread i think i see yeah Becomes something comedic when somebody is trying to remove all doubt. It, it becomes comedy, and I would even say with COVID, farce, farce. Yes, you can never be a hundred percent sure you're not going to get COVID. Like this was became a comedy in a way. People right. wearing masks outside when no one's around them, right? Just for that two tiny, masks, two masks. Yeah, this like minuscule percentage chance. Right. And even with, I think with George and Seinfeld, that's also a, a bit of a joke. Like, you know, what if he says, you know, what if it moves? Like, what if my penis moved during a massage? Right. So how can you ever, from a, from a male masseuse? Right. Um, so I kind of connected uh, this idea of it, your idea that it's in his head and the humor of this, like, trying to get to 100% certainty mm-hmm. and the comedic aspects of that. Right. Um, well, I, I thought what, what you had talked about earlier was, was this question of weakness. Joseph yeah. K being a weak character. That is... Well, so that's my question. Yeah. Um, is... Well, let me... Uh, yeah. Let me just briefly talk about the Torah, and then we'll get to this. So we'll just sure. bring everything together. So Indeed. in the Torah, um, for the last book of... Uh, for the end of the book of Genesis um, you have Joseph's brothers Hmm. and you have Joseph's father Jacob 
Joseph's brothers are, even after Joseph has forgiven them for throwing him in the pit and trying to kill him, essentially, he says, I forgive you, I love you, everything's fine. They say, but what if you don't, how do we, how can we be sure you don't still hmm. love us? How can we, I mean, you don't still hate us. Hmm. So again, it's this doubt that can never, you can never prove that somebody doesn't hate you. You never can go inside their head and know what they think. Right. Jacob, Joseph's father, he's, uh, he's on his deathbed and he says, Joseph, swear to me that when I die, you'll bury me back in Canaan with my father's. Joseph says, I swear to you, Father. Jacob says, okay. Hmm. He doesn't say, how can I trust you? Are you sure? Right? He can't prove what will happen to him after he dies. Right. But he just trusts. He has faith. He has... So, um, what, what do you see in this, in Joseph K., like, do you see him more as... The brothers or more as Jacob, I guess? Well, what you said I thought was really important. Yeah. You, he has faith. Okay. Faith takes a lot of strength. Mm-hmm. You know, the, 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 the whole Kierkegaard story of, you know, the, making that leap of faith, it takes a lot of strength and it, it, it's not something you can do easily. Um, I, I believe Joseph K., when I said what I felt Joseph K. was a weak character, um, this is something. Joseph K is a weak character because he, he he doesn't really develop as a human being in the novel. Let me give you an example of one of the things that I didn't talk about in that class, but it's something I've developed over the years. You know, when you read a novel with a really interesting main character, right? You form images of their face, maybe of the color of their hair, even if you're not told what they look like. And I, one of the examples I think about is Pride and Prejudice. Um, Elizabeth Bennet. I have a pretty good idea what Elizabeth Bennet might look like, even if it's not, even if it changes, etc., etc. She comes together as a person. Joseph K. I never, he never comes together as no. a full person. He's to the me. same as he was at the beginning as at the end. Exactly. I can see black hair because it. Oh, okay. Well, I mean, I can see black hair because. Um, I think the the washerwoman at the is attracted to his black hair or black eyes. I can't yeah, dark eyes, dark yeah. eyes or something like that. Yeah. And that's it. But the rest of it, I can't see a face unless I like paste Kafka's face onto him or or Anthony Perkins from the film. So um, f- for me, that that's that's where Joseph K's doubt resides is in the fact that. He is not a fully formed human being. He's so, go, he goes to the bank. Mm-hmm. He does his work. He does his job. He comes home. Maybe goes out drinking at night. Um, Can it, you tie that into his weakness? Yes. But because he, he, he doesn't have a personality. Um, he, doesn't have any, he doesn't have any personal strength to rest on, mm. to depend on. So he gives himself over to the court. He gives himself over to the first woman who says she can help or that he thinks can help her or the next woman he thinks can help her. Um, One of the things you see also in the novel is that Joseph K. at a certain point never really goes back home. He's in the streets all the time. He's in the courts. He's at work. 
He's at somewhere else. It's almost as if his person belongs to someone else besides himself. It's where you lead to when you get to the ultimate question at the end of that parable. It's when he says, this door was meant for you and only for you, and now that you're about to die, I'm going to close it. And the whole time in that parable, the, um, the man from the country never asks an essential question about the only time he asks the question why, which is the question that concerns him personally the most, is when he's about to die. He's been there this his entire life. And Joseph K., I see that is in the same in the same thing. He doesn't have a foundation, doesn't have a strength, faith, or anything that he can rest on that will hold him together as a person. Instead, he has to rely on whatever anybody says must be the truth because I can't depend on myself for it. See what I mean? That's the yeah, parable to well, me. Well, I agree with that. Um, I would, I would, I see as that having much to do with shame in the novel. Do you see connection there? Yeah. Yeah, but because um, he says shame is the, I think shame gets under discussed in, in about this book. It, it really is extremely important, and. Uh, when he when he dies, you know he when he's executed, it says the shame would outlive him. Yes. Um, I have an idea about how this relates to shame, but maybe I want to hear if you have that's a weakness good, and character and shame and. It's a good question because it it's a you you that discussion between guilt and shame they're not the same things, but often they feel like the same thing, you know. Yeah. Um, guilt, I think, is much deeper. You know, it's something personal, something you struggle with internally. Um, whereas shame is something that you feel in response to the society around you. That's the best I can do, <laughs> you know, in terms of definition. But um, it's you're right. Shame is not one that's discussed in that novel we rely a lot, when we talk about that novel, we rely a lot on the question of guilt. And it, it's funny because it, when you rely on that question of guilt, it, it kind of distracts you a little bit. Yeah. You know? Because we're, it, it's one of the reasons the trial is it's sort of distracting novel. You want to know what he's guilty for. Why, why is he being arrested? What's his guilt? We never know. So we're just struggling with this question of guilt and never getting an answer. Um which uh, you, you probably have different viewpoint on this, but it, it's, it's, my, it's one of the things that I find is, this might be the Catholic in me, um, you can't get away from guilt one way or the other. You can look for answers all you want, give it up. Mm-hmm. You're going to have to live with it. That to me is the faith, and that to me is the strength. Mm-hmm. Facing up to whatever guilt it is, it's just a human condition, we, have, we don't have any answers for it. Mm. We have stories about it <laughs> that show us that other people live like this so we can feel a little better, but we don't have answers for it. Um, so it, 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 it tends to be the underlying thing, but again, you know, it, it's almost as if... Um, I'll just say the one last thing about shame... Um, it's almost as if the shame is something that he feels 
that's that's triggered by um, the fact that he never faced his guilt. He didn't show the strength enough to face his guilt and thus must live in shame forever for his weakness. Yeah, or the shame maybe or I, whatever. Yeah. I, maybe I can try to tie some things together here. Sure. Because I think... Um, what I what I what I think you're trying to say is that you know this weakness of not having a personality. I might put that a personality is a weak word too. I would say not way. having values or not having um, a core, not having yes, just like and shame. I think is when you when you evaluate yourself based on how others see you and not based on what you believe you are. Yes. Um, and that's fundamentally weak position to have because you have, if you're always trying to um, make other people happy or please others or look a certain way, appear a certain way, Agreed. you're just basically, you're just totally, uh, you're just weak. You have, yeah. you're, you have no strength. And actually, it will make you, that attitude in life will make you even more weak yeah because it yeah so um and then in terms of the guilt part you know i think people that i've mentioned this a couple times about like mafia characters that even if they do maybe they do some crime maybe they'll feel guilty about it but they won't like feel like they're bad people they're like well i'm right they'll mm -hmm. uh so hmm. Whereas in Kay's case, he might have not really done anything that wrong, but he feels terrible about himself. Um, guilt, when you can say, hey, I'm guilty, it's almost like you have no shame. You like release your shame. Yes. Um, and when you try to say, I'm not guilty, I'm innocent, then ironically, you're filled with shame. So I think that's maybe... Yeah. I so, yeah. So just to come back to this question of like, why are some people able to laugh? And we see this in our daily lives where some people have a problem and they can just kind of laugh about it, make a joke. And other people get really stressed out and irritated and obsessive. Yeah. Um, for In the trial, we have so many of these moments where Kay has the choice to laugh or to take it seriously. Um, and the example with the guards, you know, in the beginning is the, probably the best example. And in the story of, you know, Joseph's brothers, they, they couldn't just laugh, so to speak. They had to say, no, we want more proof. You know, yeah. we want to be sure. Whereas Jacob could say, I'm good. You know, right. so what, so you're, as if I understand correctly, you think that Joseph K couldn't laugh because... He didn't know who he was, or why couldn't he laugh? If you're able to, if you're able to understand what sometimes seems the utter senselessness of the order of things, of the order of the universe, of the order of God's creations, however you want to see it, um, if you're able to make peace with that. Mm. 
then you don't always have to have all the answers. And you can just go on and move on. And I think getting there, there are all kinds of different ways to get there. There's a sense of just good old-fashioned irony, you know, of how utter, utterly senseless everything is and how, how laughable everything is. Maybe there's faith. You know, having a faith in a God... And this is God's creation, and you know, I, I, I'll, I'll live with God's way. Um, maybe there's a there's a balance you can strike between all of it, you know. Um, and I, I see this is where, if we're taking Joseph K, I don't think he's ever thought about it, you know. Mm. So, if I could maybe just get a little slightly personal. Yeah. Because you said you're Catholic. Yes. So I imagine you have some amount of faith. Yeah. But it's difficult. And for Joseph K., it's not even it's not even an option. Like he doesn't even think about faith or and some people have this faith, some people don't. Mm. And they maybe they want to have it. Yes. But they can't summon it. Sure. Um is that in your opinion, and I mean, I would argue that Joe's, Jacob had that faith and the, the brothers did not. And um, is that something, do you have any, can you kind of explain, you know, if somebody, as, as a Catholic, maybe as somebody who's... Mm. Lapsed Catholic at the same. <laughs> but yeah. you're familiar, like, is, is that yeah. something that you can cultivate to change yourself, to be able to have that inner strength, that faith, not necessarily to believe in God, but just to believe it's going to be okay, or I can laugh at this, or I don't have to wear two masks. Is that something? I don't know. I really don't know. It's uh, a good question. Yeah. I mean, I, I... I think the answer I gave was you should just do more yoga. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, do things to cultivate positive energy within yourself, feeling more strong, maybe, you know, becoming more like Ubermensch type of yeah, uh, kind of flowing with positive energy. Yeah. But I wasn't sure if you had any like, I, I just believe, this. I mean, it's hard for me to say. I mean, I, I grew up, I think I grew up with good family mm-hmm. that supported me. So I'm lucky in that sense. I can't just say, Oh, I did it all on my own. Um, uh, so, uh, so I, 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 I couldn't just say, you know, I always feel sort of like I don't want to lecture people when I just got it. I had it pretty good, basically. But if there's anything you, I could say that what I believe is that there's a balance, finding that balance between, um, you know, the, the the inner person and the outer person, and and f- learning to learning to make peace with where you are. As a person, as a soul, as a whatever, um, within the world, you know, finding some sense, and I think yoga does this, some sense of flow with the world around you, the air around you, the universe around you. That, that to me, is where um, finding that sense of balance. I think is where is 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 where that faith lies. I think. Okay. You know. Anyway, I, th- I think we have to to wrap up. <laughs> sure. Obviously, sure, with the trial, you could just 
keep talking about it endlessly, as you know, the priest and Joseph K also could have done uh, after about the parable. Right. But um, it was just uh, so great to have you and to like have you on the show. It's a pleasure seeing you again after these years and keeping it, up with the shrift. It's been a pleasure hearing it. So. Uh, and as a student, it's you know, I think we all have teachers that we replay in our minds like the class and it has such a big impact on us and to be able to actually sit down with a former professor and kind of get inside their 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 mind about the class so many years later is uh, such a privilege so i can tell you i appreciate you coming back to want and want to talk about this because it that was an important time for me too i mean i was just started teaching here at the institute and now i've been here whatever 15 or so years and those were formative times for me too. And I hadn't lived in France that long at that point. And kids came, have come since then. And anyway, so. Yeah. Well, I think I'll always, my image of you will always be as the professor of that class. But of course now I know you and I'm glad I've gotten to know you, you know, your, how you have changed and grown over the years too. So it's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. It's good to see you again. All right. So that was, uh, the shrift. Um, with Lee Smith of uh, Institute of American Universities, uh, Aix-en-Provence. As I look back on the interview... I realized that I said that neurosis is their character trait which links the likes of George Costanza and Alexander Portnoy to the underground man and Joseph K. We throw around the word neurotic a lot, in fact, but what does this word mean, really? Martin Luther was neurotic, but in a less endearing and also less disturbing way. Martin Luther, for example, obsessed about the state of his soul and was tormented by the premise that salvation would always elude him for sin was inevitable. Luther, however, eventually overcame this maddening preoccupation when he at last enjoyed his Eureka moment, salvation through faith alone. One need only have faith in God to be saved. Nothing else mattered. With one fell swoop, Luther had cured his neuroses and become a cheery old beer drinker once more, albeit prone to anti-Semitic outbursts and the ruthless quashing of peasant rebellions. Is neurosis then an ancient or a modern ailment? In the most overdetermined of ways, Luther dodged the fate of the neurotic by finding a religious loophole. Obviously, for Joseph K. and certainly for George Costanza, Salvation through faith is comically rendered as so ridiculous that it is not even worth considering. In turn, these characters never broke free of their pathological obsessiveness. In fact, one could perhaps even sum up Dostoevsky's entire ethos as follows. To free yourself from crippling neurosis, get religious, man. Indeed, rumor even has it that Dostoevsky considered an alternative ending for his novella, Notes from Underground, in which the underground man escapes from his neurosis by turning toward Christianity. So, what does it mean, in fact, to be neurotic? It is a word we toss around a lot, but how often do we stop to consider what it really conveys? 
Strangely enough, it does not mean to go about your day like Woody Allen and Annie Hall, though it, of course, does not preclude this definition. Here are a couple of definitions I like from Collins' Dictionary. Neurosis. Any disorder of the mind that causes distress but does not distort an individual's perception of reality. Neurosis. Any persistent preoccupation that causes worry and anxiety. Neurosis. A relatively mild personality disorder typified by excessive anxiety or indecision and a degree of social or interpersonal maladjustment. Why is it then that all of these neurotic characters seem to crop up at the same time that religion is dying out? Joseph's brothers might have been, at least in comparison to their father Jacob, weak-minded, but I think would be a bit of a stretch to term them as neurotic, at least by Larry David standards. Or maybe the Industrial Revolution is to blame. Perhaps we just aren't getting enough magnesium anymore from the soil, or are going to bed with the lights on, or are drinking milk from cows who eat corn instead of grass. In any case, if there were neurotics in the ancient and medieval and even early modern world, they were hardly being documented as unforgettable literary characters as they are today. Perhaps, then, we have another reason why we should read gloomy existential literature, even when we are vacationing in the sunny south of France. To pretend as though the neurosis of our age can simply be whisked away by implanting ourselves in the birthplace of courtly love poetry is to behave inauthentically. It is to play-act and to deny ourselves the freedom to accept the zeitgeist which masquerades all around us. Indeed, Sartre coined a term for this type of insidious denial. He called it bad faith.